G'day and welcome to the Noob Spiro podcast episode 83. Now, if you are tuning in for the first time, you are joining myself, Turbo, and my good mate, Shrek, for the world's premier spearfishing podcast. We talk spearfishing with some of the world's best Spiros for about an hour every fortnight and publish it here on iTunes for you so you can get better at spearfishing. Now, today it's Shrek flying solo on this absolutely epic episode. Now, Shrek is joined by Andrew Lewin, who hosts his own podcast called Speak Up for the Blue. Now, Shrek told me he loved doing this interview, and there's a lot to like about Andrew and Speak Up for the Blue. Now, Andrew always tries to remain positive and celebrates the good things that are happening out there in our blue world. He has a great awareness of uh, science. He's an ocean ecologist, but he keeps it nice and simple for blokes like myself and Shrek so that we can even follow along. Uh, he's very aware of real conservation efforts and how they involve uh, community efforts and not just changing legislation. I think that's a great a, a great idea, you know. You can't just keep slapping people on the wrist for doing the wrong things, you know. It's about uh, changing society as a whole, so that's very exciting. Um, but perhaps one of the most uh, obvious things about uh, this interview with Shrek is just how much uh, Andrew loves the ocean and how passionate and committed he is to it. Now, in this interview, they discuss uh, what sustainable actually means in its most basic form, which is quite important. They discuss parrotfish and their, their effects on reefs. They discuss citizen science initiatives and not being afraid of approaching and discussing things with real scientists and ocean advocacy groups, which I think is a great point, connecting the people with the professionals. Very, very important. Okay, now this is really just part one in a series uh, that we'll do in a wide-ranging discussion about sustainability, spearfishing, and how we can all contribute. Now, I love this episode. I think it's a great initiative, and I think Shrek's done an absolutely bang-up job. I think it's very, very important for all of us uh, to take a little bit of care of the ocean and uh, and and sort of help those around. So enjoy this episode uh, with Shrek. And we have a few shout-outs as well uh, to uh, get through before we get into that episode. All right, a couple of red-hot reviews off the old interwebs out there from you guys, which we always appreciate. Uh, Matty Hing, he says... Uh, I only just found this podcast and I'm loving it. I've been sparing for a few years now, but I'm still learning new things from listening to this podcast, which uh, wish this had been around when I was first starting out. I would recommend this podcast for Spiros of any level. Keep up the great work, boys. Thanks, Matty. We appreciate that. Uh, and Tommy Daz, great podcast. My diving hunting has improved in leaps and bounds, and it's genuinely interesting to listen to. Uh, with a few laughs added in, keep it up, legends, cheers, Tom. Oh, he even called us legends. What a legend himself. And uh, here's, here's one of my favourite um, reviews from 99 Tips to Get Better at Spearfishing on Amazon. So Woody says, this book will benefit new and experienced Spiros alike. The information in the book is original and well-organised from sources including many legends in the spearfishing community. Also, tune into their podcast. Their interviews with experienced Spiros are pure gold. That's absolutely right. It's all about our guests, and they are fair income legends. Uh, Craig Noy says exactly what I was looking for. 
As a newbie in the sport, I've been struggling to find info on basic strategy and tips. There's surprisingly little available online that is well organized. This book was cheap and exactly the info I needed. If nothing, just hearing the book say that spearfishing has a huge learning curve was really encouraging. Well, I like that you said it was cheap because that's exactly what we are. We're cheap and informative. So uh, thanks very much, Craig. I think you've summed us up very well. I know Shrek's very cheap. Anyway, all right. Now, guys, also uh, also available for pre-order on Indie, Indiegogo is the Spiro Log and 99 Tips to Get Better at Spearfishing. So if you did miss out, check it out. Uh, you can go on Indiegogo. And um, because we haven't got those the books here yet, you can go on there and um, pledge, and it should go out with the rest of them, uh, rest of the orders. Uh, the PDF version is now live, so... Um, if you got on the Kickstarter Indiegogo on demand, you should have your copy. Uh, I did send out a, a message on Kickstarter. So hopefully you all received your PDF version. It looks very pretty and it's full of great information. So please enjoy uh, the hard copy T-shirts and all the other pledges are on their way. Um, and the printer is now sticking to their deadline, which we really appreciate because I'm I'm sweating on this. I just want to get it out to you guys. And uh, it's been, been pretty stressful. I think self-publishing has a few pitfalls and we found them. But not to worry, we are on track. So thanks for your patience. We're getting it out to you very shortly. I think that's it from me. I have not been in the water for, oh, God, a month or more now, but it's happening. It's happening in uh, in a couple of weeks' time. We've got a little trip planned um, up into Queensland, a little bit further north into Queensland, so I'm absolutely pumped. All that nice winter weather starting to set in in our part of the world. That can mean nice, clean inshore water and uh, westerly winds that flatten off the oceans uh, in our part of the world, which is bloody lovely. It's a little bit more uncomfortable, but it's not that cold, so it's okay. All right, I'm starting to ramble. You don't care if I'm going spearfishing. What you care about is listening to our expert today and Shrek getting all the good oil out of him. So enjoy this episode, guys. Sustainable spearfishing. We should all be involved. It should be front of mind. Enjoy this one. I hope you learned something. Big thank you to our sponsor, Adreno Spearfishing Supplies. You can find Adreno in Brisbane, Sydney, and Melbourne. They are one of the biggest and best spearfishing stores in the world and stock a full range of spearfishing gear, more than you could ever imagine. So check them out in store, or if you prefer to shop online, check them out at spearfishing.com.au and do yourself a favor, at checkout, use the code NOOBSPEARO to save yourself $20 on all purchases over 200 so that is spearfishing.com.au and use the code NoobSpear at checkout. Okay, g'day guys. I'm joined today by Andrew from the founder of Speak Up for the Blue. He's a marine ecologist and I thought I would invite him along for 101 Sustainable Spiro uh, because I listen to his show myself and I know he's got a, a positive and optimistic outlook on um, on the environment, but he's also very real and he's got a lot of information to share with us. So just want to welcome you to the show, Andrew. Thank you very much, Isaac. It's, it's good to be here. No problem, man. Um, look, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, where do you live in the States? And um, and uh, yeah, let's get started there. Funny, funny thing is I'm Canadian. I live in Canada. Ah, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> That's sorry. all right. No oh. worries. No, no, I don't take offense. I don't take offense. Um, no, I I, uh, I live in Canada. I actually live just outside Toronto in Ontario, Canada. 
um, okay. not not far from the states, really close to the border. Um, yeah. And most of uh, my audience for for my podcast, Speak Up for Blue podcast, is actually in in the U.S. So I, I, there's a lot of stuff I keep I keep up to date on what's going on in the U.S. as well as Canada and and, and the world uh, for marine environment. But um, essentially, I'm a marine scientist. Uh, and, and I, I really am involved in science communication. Um, I started a company called the speak up for blue, uh, media and communications incorporated. And essentially it's, it's all centered around, uh, bringing out a message of change in the way we act as humans around the ocean. Uh, that's, that's essentially where it's really coming from. Um, and I can tell you why later on in the show, but that's, that's essentially what I do. So I podcast for a living. Um, and, and I just started, yeah, I just started, uh, back in October in terms of going full time, but I've, the speak up for blue podcast has been around for almost, it'll be three years in June. So we're approaching yeah. three years and, uh, you know, we're growing quite honest. We just, we just surpassed 200,000 downloads, which is great. Oh, look at that. Uh, yeah. Look at and, uh, and our, and it just keeps growing and growing and, uh, we've seen a real big growth in the last year and, and it's, and it's because of like just collaborating with different people, getting on other podcasts and especially mm-hmm. that are like outdoor podcasts, like such as yours, mm-hmm. like such as Spiro. And there's another one called fish nerds. And, um, it's just, it's just great to be able to talk to a lot of different people that, that, uh, respect the outdoors, right. To respect nature, mm-hmm. respect the ocean. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that's, what's, what's helped in, in terms of getting out there and, and building up this audience. Yeah. Cool. I, li- I like listening to, to your show. Um, I mean, you've got a several different style episodes, but I kind of like listening to the latest research that's coming out and some of the interesting things that are going around the world. Recently we had, uh, I had James Nestor on the show, who's, uh, the author of, um, Deep freediving, renegade science, and and you know, and and, uh, and a kind of a version about the hu- the human body and what that goes through in the ocean. But he also explores a lot of the the kind of the quirky areas of research going on in the world. And I think a lot of our listeners are the same. They really enjoy hearing about kind of the different parts of research. And um, and generally, most spiros are, are fairly um, aware of the environment and kind of what's going on in it. So so it's cool to have you on the show. All right, so you're a marine ecologist yes. which is a type of marine biologist can you explain what what is a marine ecologist so uh, well a marine biologist is people who study animals in the ocean a marine ecologist is studying the interaction of animals with their habitat right so uh, that inter- how do they use their habitat where do they go where where don't they go why uh, all that type of stuff so a lot of my stuff actually if you go deep, dig deeper i'm actually a marine spatial ecologist so i look at okay. patterns of uh, how animals uh, travel and are distributed within a, within a study area. So, say uh, if you look at something like a coral reef, uh, you would, as a as a marine ecologist, you would look at how uh, uh, fish that eat just uh, vegeta- vegetation, so herbivore herbivores fish, how are they distributed along along the coral reef, and how is that affecting coral reefs? Because technically, those fish keep the algae off of corals. Right, mm-hmm. so like you get parrotfish and all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. They they keep the algae off the corals, allow the corals to to be corals and to be healthy, and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if they're gone, the algae can grow, overgrow the corals, and the coral can't can't get rid of the algae. Right, so I look at mm-hmm. that sort of relationship. I, I don't. I, I wish I did more work on reefs. But I, unfortunately, I don't living in a yeah. temperate area, but a lot of my work has uh, surrounded itself with looking at marine mammals, how they react to different um, human disturbance, such as noise or oil and gas uh, platforms mm. and, and things like that. So 
Uh, but it's interesting. It's fun. So you look at all spatially. I do a lot of mapping, digital mapping, uh, and mm. being able to tell trends and do some some statistical analysis and look at whether a pattern is real or just random. Okay. I, I want to just, just take a little bit of a brief journey into this parrotfish. I saw an argument a while ago. It was a huge argument about parrotfish and their effect on the reef. It is well known that they they chew off parasites and algae and other things that inhibit the coral coral growth. Um, but then there was another argument that a larger parrotfish actually destroy the reef. They chew chunks off it and things like that. What's your kind of take on that? Well, it's all balance, right? It's all balance in the system. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, we'll go with that argument first and I'll talk about even a bigger argument within that, within yeah. the science community, um, which is, it's kind of weird, but the way it is, I mean, you look at a bigger fish can take a, like when they, when a parrotfish takes a bite of algae off of a coral, it takes a bit of the coral with it. So the mm. larger the fish, the larger the bite. Um, but overall, you would think like it, it, overall, it's 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 you're getting rid of the algae growth, so that algae mm. can't spread. So yes, a coral, depending on the type of coral species, if it's a hard coral or a soft coral, will eventually regenerate. And uh. as long as there's not too many of those parrotfish in one area where it's they're constantly nipping at these corals, and so it doesn't allow for regrowth. Uh, then mm. then you've got a problem. But if it's evenly distributed or somewhat mm. evenly distributed where there's it's a there's a moderate amount, then the the effect will be less. So so okay. you know it, coral reefs actually go through a lot of disturbances. You know, a cyclone comes through, uh, can mm. disturb a coral, but actually if there aren't too many that come by at once, it's actually really good for the diversity of the coral the coral habitat. You know, mm -hmm. so studies have found that cyclones are actually good for, for diversity, and that means it's good for stability in the long run. In the short term, it can destroy an entire area, but that, yeah. you know, corals regrow. So depending as long as they can have that time to regrow, then it's good. If you have if you have cyclone after cyclone after cyclone, like, you know, within yeah. a month, like a number between, within a month, like five or six, then it's a little, it takes a little longer to recover. But overall, it's actually pretty good. Okay, interesting conversation. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and just to, sorry, just to go on with the science, like the overall science, the bigger scientific question is a lot of people say, well, you know, herbivores, herbivores fish like parrotfish are the bigger, um, are, are really important for coral reefs. If they disappear, then, uh, you know, you're going to get just algae. Uh, but then other scientists that are more into like the water quality and nutrients say, well, if you have an added, you know, more nutrients in the water, it doesn't matter how many herbivorous fish you have, you can't stop the growth of algae. They're both right and they're both wrong, right? It's a moderate amount. If you have a lot of herbivorous fish or not a lot of herbivorous fish and a lot of nutrients coming in, you can have a lot of algae. But if you have ah. one of too much of one, then of course you can have a, an imbalance. So um, it's all about balance and keeping everything stable. That's why that's why you hear a lot of scientists talk about how important diversity is because it keeps mm. it stable, right? So if you have one mm. species of herbivorous fish that disappears from an area, but there's another species already there that can fill its spot, then you're okay. But if you only have one herbivorous fish and they disappear, mm. then you're you're gonna get a you're gonna get an uncontrollable growth of, of macroalgae. Yeah. So what do they call like you know with the human body you have homeostasis? What do you call that in the ocean? What's the similar the the equilibrium factor? What do you call that? Is there Call it many things. You can call it just like a buffer system. You can. It's. I mean, it's. It's all with the, within the food web, right? And it's just sort of keeping an equilibrium within the food web. Um, mm. So that's usually what you what you call it, you know. And, and and you can call it. I mean, you can call it sustainable, 
right? Uh, yeah. You can call it state, just stable, you know, a stable habitat type thing. So there's many words to describe. There's not just just one, but they all mean the same thing. Excellent. You used the million dollar word there, a couple of million dollar words. Yeah. Let's dig in. <laughs> let's dig into sustainable. This episode's called 101 Sustainable Spiro. Um, what does sustainable mean? Um, it's such a trendy word these days. It gets thrown around like, I don't know, like a, like a political sort of just catch word now. And it's, it's, uh, but it's actually, I, I really like the word when you use it properly, but unfortunately it's, it tends to be overused and abused. So, I mean, what is sustainable? What does it mean? I mean, I, I guess it depends on, on, on how you use it, but essentially it's, it's something that you can reuse over and over and over again. Uh, mm. as long as you don't abuse it, you know what I mean? So, so let's talk about fishing, right? Mm. Um, if you uh, say, even talk about spear fishing, if you have a number of divers who use the same area over and over and over again and look mm. for the same big fish, mm. you know, and you're constantly getting that same big fish, you're not fishing sustainably, right? Because ah. you're fishing the same species and the same size of species. Well, if you go mm. for the biggest fish all the time, Right. And, uh, you know, you're not going to the next generation of fish are not going to be bigger because you're you're selecting all the big fish out of the population. So the next generation to to regenerate is going to be smaller fish. Now, I'm not saying that that's that spear fishermen do that. I'm just saying just imagine if like, you know, you take one if you just look at specific one area, like say within a couple of square kilometers, that's the only thing you fish for like 30 years. Eventually, you're going to see a trend going down, but you see it very quickly within commercial fishing, um, sometimes even recreational fishing, depending on how much pressure you put on it. Is that is that uh is that shifting baseline phenomena? Is that the is that the catch line for that one? Yeah, basically, yeah, it's a shift. It's yes, yeah, so you're shifting the baseline. You're shifting the trend. You're you're shifting what's what like you'd expect to see, right? So yeah. if you talk about, um, you know, uh, let's say the NASA grouper, right? Mm. In Bahamas, a huge huge fish. Um, what fishermen were doing there for a long time is they were actually uh, fishing in the spawning area. So you know oh, well. where the fish would 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 uh, congregate at once a year, and you get and they take all the massive fish because that's the best thing you're gonna get. You're gonna get the best bang for the buck for that one. Um, but then oh, they wow. kept doing it, and then the next generation was smaller, and the next generation yeah. was smaller, and eventually they just disappear because they can't compete with other other large fish that that are going for the same predators, right, or same prey. So um, okay. so yeah, so it is a shifting baseline. But you, I mean, shifting baseline it could be referred to anything. You know, you can have a shifting baseline in temperature, right? We've, we've seen that in, in, in your part of the world. Uh, you know, Australia has seen a huge shift in, in baseline sea surface temperatures, uh, which mm. has caused a, a massive bleaching uh, in, in, in Australia along the Great Barrier Reef. So that has been a shifting baseline as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's shifted the baseline, but New Zealand's the same. Um, this year, the summer season's seen, like, really, really warm water um, uh it's it's very interesting it's, it'll be interesting to see whether whether it continues that way over the long term but this summer season that i've seen unseasonably hot water and uh they're getting they're getting a, a much greater diversity of species and things like that but uh so it's good for spearfishing but um, <laughs> whether it's good for the ocean in general i'm not sure um but yeah all right so Okay, what 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 single experience or kind of what's what's been most influential in shaping your passion for the marine environment? Where did it all start? Well, it, it all started watching documentaries. 
you know, the, the Jacques Cousteau documentary, you know, I'm very cliche that way, uh, really yeah, inspired yeah, yeah, yeah. me. So I, where I grew up in Ontario, I, I we're surrounded by the Great Lakes, beautiful area, beautiful landscape. Uh, it's just gorgeous, but we're not by the ocean. And for some reason, I, I've always felt a pull to, towards the ocean. I wanted to learn about it all my life. I used to get frustrated in science class in high school because it was always about human biology. And I was like, I don't care about human biology. I want to know about <laughs> dolphins and sharks and whales and all that kind of stuff. And I used to dream yeah. about, you know, being out on the ocean and, and doing field work and all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah. so I always had that pull. And I think the documentaries really kind of brought that passion out. And in, in, I knew in grade nine that I wanted to be a marine biologist, so it was it was kind of nice. It always set my path, uh, you know, mm. to, to very scientific uh, sort of pathway, um, which was great. I loved it, you know, and, and it was it was it was awesome. And I still love it. Over over the years, though, I mean, I've been doing this as a professional for seventeen years, and uh, there's been a lot of different things that have that have shaped. Uh, you know, sort of my passion to continue on. And uh, at the beginning, I, I worked in the Gulf of Mexico as a marine technician. I, I lived on a boat for eight months. And, you know, just being out on the water when it's like slick, calm, and it looks like glass. And, yeah. you know, and, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm on a hammock in the evening watching the sunset. And I'm like, this is my life. Like, I'm getting paid yeah. to do this. I mean, that <laughs> is just one thing that you get to see things you don't normally get to see when you're out on the water. I mean, you guys know as a spear fisherman that you just, it's beautiful. It's, it's absolutely uh, calming and it's, there's nothing better than being yeah. around the ocean. I mean, to, uh, you know, I, I was on a 110 foot boat and every time we were going from place to place, you know, you'd see bottlenose dolphins that were just swimming alongside us. And there's yeah. nothing better than that. Like it's, it's just a fun thing to see. And, um, and so that sort of drove, continued to drive me. Uh, and then other things like, you know, snorkeling and dive trips of just, con- you know, every time you see a, a different animal, a different species that you haven't seen before, it's amazing. Mm. I, I, just, I saw an Olive Ridley sea turtle uh, uh, last year in Grand Cayman, just fantastic. Um, so that can, kept continuing. Now I have kids, you know, snorkeling with kids and watching them sort of discover things for the first time. You know, like I, I bet you, you guys know as, as spear fishermen, I mean, you can go down in the ocean and you can see sort of the, what I call the macro level. So you see the big fish, maybe you see a shark every once in a while or a dolphin or a sea turtle and everything like that. And that's great. But when you get to down to the nitty gritty and you look at, you know, the reef or you look at like a seagrass habitat and you part the seagrass out and you see this little puffer fish that pops up or you see like mm-hmm. a, a nematode, like a little fit, a little worm that's like, you know, brightly colored that you've never like colors that you've never seen put together before. I mean, mm-hmm. that is what like excites me now is just that discovery mm-hmm. and watching my kids discover that type of stuff. And uh, yeah. that continues to drive me. And, and now it's it's more of getting what drives me now my passion is is getting people to talk about the ocean right that's mm-hmm. what drives me is like you know having you know coming on a podcast like this and just being and, and like hanging out with somebody who's who loves being in the water just as much as I do and 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 you know talking about ocean conservation and and what we can do to make it better that's what drives me now so it's been an evolution Right. And, uh, and, and so it's it, but it's all around that passion that just, that just drives you. But anytime you get me on the ocean, I'm, 
it's like a it's like it's like a recharge right it's like somebody just plugged me into a wall to recharge my battery so it's always nice well, it's cool it's good speaking to other people that are passionate about the ocean it's um it's very it's very inspiring and your uh, passion is contagious andrew so <laughs> <Thanks>. all right <laughs> let's talk about some specific projects you've been a part of and um i mean it's interesting your your field in particular um i've read some research about sort of you know, studying, you know, a very small part of a reef, maybe 50 metres squared, which is actually not very small because it's a lot of work. It a is. lot of work to to um, to stake sort of an area like that out and fully sort of see what's there. Um, I mean, have you done things like that? I mean, can you give me some specific examples and places you've you've worked? Yeah, uh, I know going back to, to the Gulf of Mexico, I, I was uh, part of a study where we looked at um, the uh, Mississippi River uh, the largest river in the U.S., uh, the plume of the Mississippi as it enters uh, the Gulf of Mexico. So uh, what happens is every springtime, you get a, a massive uh, flux of water, come, influx of water coming in from the, from the river, which goes all the way up to the northern U.S., coming all the way down. But as it comes all the way down, it accumulates all the stuff that's discharged along the way. Uh, so as you can imagine, there's a lot of nutrients that go in that water. And by the time it hits the the, the Gulf of Mexico and that and and in, and it comes in the springtime, you get this massive bloom of phytoplankton. So there's a huge, huge green water uh, plume. And and because of the push of that plume, it can go across the Gulf the northern Gulf of Mexico. And it can reach wow. like you know, it goes past like a number of states and reach the other side, like Texas and, and even some parts of Mexico. Uh, so it's very, very strong. Um, but the, what, what's happening now is because there's so many nutrients, you get the phytoplankton bloom. During, right before summer, they all die and they all sink to the bottom. All the phytoplankton sinks to the bottom. And as it sinks to the bottom, uh, one, you get less of a mixing because the winds die down. And in the Gulf of Mexico, like southern U.S., very humid, no wind, very hot, so that the the layers stratify, right? So that you get mm, these okay. different layers, and so it's, there's no mixing in the water column. So that phytoplankton just sits on the bottom. It gets decomposed by uh, bacteria, and the bacteria mm. use up oxygen when they decompose okay. the the thing. Oh, wow. all right, and and they actually release methane. So what happens Ooh. is you get because there's so much phytoplankton because of the nutrients, you get this Ooh. this bottom layer, one and a half meter layer of no oxygen. Mm. Oh, wow. So think about the push that the Mississippi does almost all the way to Texas. Mm-hmm. In the bottom layers, with no, in many places, of no oxygen. So sometimes That's it's like 22,000 square kilometers. Just de- de- devoid of life on the bottom. Exactly. So it gets, you know, it's it's a big concern, obviously. And I was working with Dr. Nancy Rabelais at the time, uh, who was the chief scientist there. And she, uh, she her her reporting would actually go straight to Congress, so straight to the federal government. And she would have, she, I mean, she had to learn. I mean, she was a scientist, but she had to learn how to how to speak politics to the politicians uh, and make it worthwhile. So she, she, her study helped control the amount of pesticides and nutrients that were allowed to be added to all the agricultural land along the along the Mississippi. Um, so she was under high pressure, let's just say, because farmers did not want to want to have to adhere to what she had to say. So um, it, would, but it was a really cool thing because what we would do is we would follow the Mississippi plume. And so mm. what's cool is because the Mississippi plume is fresh water. So the boat mm. would go up and down the Mississippi plume as wide as it would go. And we would just have uh, instruments in the water that would detect oxygen levels or sorry, salt levels. So when you're in the plume, the salt levels down because it's mostly fresh water. But when you go, mm-hmm. as soon as you hit the border, it shoots back up to like 35 parts per million. 
So you're uh, just yeah. like, wow, okay, we just go and you can see the line in the water of the different mm-hmm. like the different density. So you have fresh water, salt water, fresh water, salt water, fresh water, salt water. Mm-hmm. So we would go up and down and then we would do CTD casts in, in there. So it was basically an instrument that would measure the 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 depth, the salinity, the temperature, uh, phytoplankton levels and all that kind of stuff and oxygen levels and whatnot. So it was really kind of fun to go back and forth and, and see that um, and be, and it had to be, everything had to be so precise. Because, I mean, one, it's science, but the other, it was going to Congress. So we had to make sure that nobody could poke a hole through the, the science. So it was very challenging, but it was, it was amazing. So uh, cool. yeah, that was a fun one. I enjoyed that. The Hex Dive Now Pay Later deal is finishing soon. Now, it's a great opportunity to get in one of the highest quality wetsuits on the planet um, for a deposit, and then you can pay the rest later. So, you know, that's pretty good. Spend a little bit of money on that wetsuit every month and a little bit on boat fuel or whatever. So that's a pretty good deal deal from Hex. I reckon that's an absolute ripper. And a big thanks to Hex, Warren and the guys um, at Hex for getting on board and supporting uh, the 99 Tips uh, Kickstarter project. They pledged uh, for advertising, and uh, that really, really helped us out. So a uh, big thanks to those guys. Warren's an absolute legend. So if you have any questions, get on there. Uh, I think it's info at hexaquatic.com. Um, super helpful guys great people to deal with and, and just an all around good company so um, go and check them out um, hexquatic.com um, now on your on your show I listen to sort of marine researchers and occasionally other people speak to you about different things but I have never heard of Spiro on your show I'd love to hear what you what your perception is of spearfishing and uh, what kind of associations or ideas do you sort of have about it and um, I mean generally on the show we practice just free dive spearfishing um, uh, scuba dive spearfishing is, is something we haven't really talked a lot about on the show but I mean in general what is kind of your perception of, of the sport well, I think one I have a, I have a huge respect for for the people and the sport in general. Um, I've seen you know the the, the more I've I, I've I've never done it. Uh, I've mm. never I've never had the chance. I I don't know if I could. You guys hold your mm. breath for a really long time. Like you like you said earlier, there's a science to it. You know what I mean? Like um, so, I have a, a deep respect for that for just the free diving aspect and and having that accuracy and whatnot. And I've, I watch a lot of videos on spear fishing because I'm always I'm always amazed just uh, like how patient everybody is before they like they they you know you find the fish and then you you get it and then how accurate you are. I would just be I would be freaking out down there like no no tank. I'm a scuba diver. I'm not a free diver, so I'm not used to that. But I, what I like the thing is is like it, it and as any recreational fisher would be is they love the outdoors. So I have to respect that because you love the outdoors and I love the outdoors, right? I love being in the ocean. You love, you wouldn't do it if you didn't like being in the ocean. Um, and it's, it's definitely an adventurous sport. Uh, uh, it's, it it could be dangerous at times. Um, but for the most part, what I've seen is I've seen people who are in it because they love it and they care for the ocean. Um, and I find it's easier to connect with, with, recreational fishermen and and spear fishermen and, and women, I'll say fisher, but um, I just find it's easier to connect with them because you see the same thing. You understand yeah. what it's like to be underwater. And I mean, I know you guys are focused a lot of times on finding a fish, but you're also looking around. You know what I mean? Right. And you're, you appreciate the complexity 
um, and the beauty of it. And, and, and I think it's, it's easier to speak to somebody like that about ocean conservation than it is somebody who's never been in the water, right? Because you understand, you see the changes, right? And, and we're aware of it and then we value it because we, we value kind of, we're grateful for what the opportunity we have now. So yeah, nah, cool, man. Um, yeah, I, I started off scuba diving as well, so I, I'm kind of familiar with 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 the with the passion. I mean, I went right through to instructor level before I uh, before before I really couldn't get a job and had to go and get a <laughs> had to go and get a real job. Uh, but <laughs> but I, I, but um but yeah, but no, I think yeah, you're right. We all share this common bond with the with the underwater ocean and and with the underwater environment, and we we. We, we value the resource, we're appreciative of it, so we, we're generally more receptive to hearing about different things that are going on. We, we have a, a number of sort of marine management things going on in the waters of Australia, and I, I believe there's, there's some things in the works for other parts of the Pacific at the moment. I mean, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of marine management uh, or fisheries management strategies that are being used now uh, in different parts of the world, and wh- which ones, I mean, are, are effective and which ones are, are not? Well, I mean, the f- the first thing is 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 I think what the what the science and and management community have have really figured out uh, is that nothing you do is going to be effective unless you bring the people who are fishing to the table, yeah. and that's the biggest thing. And that, and it, and it works with with spear fishing. It works with recreational fishing. It works with with commercial fishing, and it's the mm. hardest part is is bringing people to the table uh, before you start any kind of management process, you know, even before yeah. you start, because you need to get the idea, you know, uh, because what what, do you, what was happening in the past was scientists would say, okay, here are the quotas. This is how much you need to fish if you want to make it sustainable, right? Mm-hmm. And then, and, and so let's just use an, an example um, for uh, tuna fish in the Mediterranean. So the European Union got together, and every year they get together, and they want to get um, an idea. They go to their scientists, and they say, okay, let us know what is the uh, maximum uh, number of fish that we can fish that will make it sustainable. So they came up with, okay, it was, well, it's 15,000 tons, right? Okay. And so the European, like the, the, the managers got it. They said, okay, no problem. Right off the bat, like, we're going to double it. Because we know the fishing community, the commercial fishing community want more. So we're just going to say 30,000. So right off the bat, they've doubled the amount you can fish before, so it would become sustainable. So now you're not making it sustainable at all, right? You're actually going two times more than you should. And then yeah, they yeah. go to the table to talk to the commercial fishermen and they negotiate. And then it, it ended up, one year, it ended up being 60,000 tons. So oh, now wow. you're like four times more of what you originally started that would make it sustainable. So that just doesn't work. And and another example, I was a part of my master's degree was looking at um, marine sizes and and places of marine protected areas along the Scotian Shelf, so along the east coast of Canada, Bay of Fundy, Scotian Shelf. And uh, I was part of a bigger project with World Wildlife Fund where they were looking at putting together a network of marine protected areas, very similar to the Great Barrier Reef. It has, it has little different management areas, smaller management areas within one big area. And mm. uh, But the, 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 the problem that they did with that, they worked with the government, they, worked with, uh, they were a nonprofit organization. Problem with that is they decided to come up with a model and they came up with um, you know a set of areas, sort of pr- priority areas that they called, and they were, they brought it to the fishing community, but mm. they failed to communicate to the fishing community that 
this wasn't the final map. So the fishing community is like, well, this is the final map. And all these fish are like, well, wait, that's my, that's my hotspot. No, I'm not giving up that. Like you put a marine protected area right on that. You know, I'm not going to go there. So they're, they're, the trouble with that is they didn't go to the, the fishing group before they started the process and get their input. Because the model could have spit out a very different um, uh, scenario based on the input, what we call traditional fishing knowledge or traditional ecological knowledge uh, in, within the area. And, and so it would come up with something different. So you can come up with a lot of different things. Um, so when you bring that to the table and you get them involved and you say, hey, what's, you know, let's, let's share data so that we could mm. maximize your yeah. area, right? And they did that in the Great Barrier Reef, uh, and it wasn't easy. But at one point, the Great Barrier Reef had a, a 3% of the area was no-take areas. That means nobody could go in. Scientists couldn't go in. Fishers couldn't go in. Tourists couldn't go in, like recreational diving and all that. Spearfishing couldn't go in. Um, mm. So they wanted to increase that after like 30 years. Mm. So what they did is they, they, they had, at the beginning of the Great Barrier Reef Park, when they, when they established it, they put trackers on all the commercial fishing boats mm. to find out where they're fishing. And then so what they did is they looked at how big they wanted, what areas they wanted to make bigger and what areas they wanted to add to the no-take. And then they overlaid that on a map with the GPS points of where the fishers were going. Well, it just mm. so happened that the fishers weren't going anywhere near where they wanted to expand. So they were like, okay. this is perfect. So they went to the fishing community. like, hey, this is where we want to expand. The fishing community is like, oh, hey, we don't even go there. Let's do it. We have no problems with it. So they were able to expand it by like, I think it was like 27%, you know, mm. and, and now they have more no-take, you know, no-take uh, areas and without mm. even any kind of, con well, very little conflict with, with the fishing community. And so it, it helps when you work together, but it's getting that initial working together and that trust because there's just, when you have government and other stakeholders, especially commercial fishing or uh, Aboriginal uh, groups, it's, the trust isn't there, and you have to you have yeah. to reestablish that trust before you can get anything to work. And it's it's working, it's working, but it takes yeah. a while to work. Yeah, it's like you know, inclusive management uh, in any form takes a lot of hard work, uh, um, but long term, it's far more effective than sort of the piecemeal stuff we've seen in the past. Um, I know down down in New South Wales, the the USFA, one of the sort of the larger um, underwater spearfishing associations in Australia, they they share a lot of data with the with the government down there, uh, all of their competition records. And uh, I know that um, sometimes marine biologists uh, will survey a, an area, uh, but what you see on scuba and what you see freediving are two completely different things. And so sometimes freedivers can be a very effective surveying um, tool in and of themselves. And so, yeah, I really like hearing these kind of inclusive strategies. I, I know um, in different parts of Australia, n no one is really sure of you know, which areas are go and no-go. You've, you've got the fisheries department, then you'll have, uh, you know, you'll have three or four different agencies all with different rules about the area and putting it all together on one map so that a recreational fisherman can look at it and go, oh, okay, okay, that's pretty straightforward, that's easy, no worries, okay. It's, 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 it's still piecemeal in a lot of parts of the world, even in developed countries like Australia. So, Oh, yeah, I mean, um, Canada, Canada is just coming around to establishing marine protected areas. And it's only because the government we have now is really that they ran on that campaign that they were going to increase it from like we were at 1.3%. Now we have a huge coastline.
coastline uh, and a lot of water to, to protect. But it, I think they want to bring up to 15 percent in the next two years. Uh, and there, it looks like they're going to be doing it. Um, but before it was very piecemeal. It was just like, oh, there's a boat that sank here, and we're going to call it a historical spot. It's a very cultural spot, but it had nothing to do with ecological spots. Um, now we're getting more into the ecological aspect because there's there's more data. We followed a lot of like the Australian um, uh, model for Great Barrier Reef. We had a bunch of Australians come over to to do some contract work to really advise. World Wildlife Fund and the government and everything like that. And we've done a lot of work to do that. Um, so we're actually increasing it. But we're definitely behind. And I think a lot of other people are behind because it wasn't until about 15 years ago that marine protected areas were really um, you know, taken in as something that is a tool in the tool belt. It's not the perfect tool, but it is a tool to protect a specific area. And, it, and it, we know now because of the data that if you do it right and you get everybody on board, that you that it actually works you see a higher abundance in fish you see a higher biomass in fish you're getting big more and bigger fish and you're seeing a spillover effect which is what you know uh managers were promising fishers before and that they didn't believe it you know because it's hard like especially with a lot of um you know a lot of artisanal fishermen where mm-hmm. you know they they rely on it for their food you know for their own yeah. consumption and so mm-hmm. you have to say no you can't fish here you know, managers were going up to them saying, you can't fish here for five years. Well, they're like, how yeah. am I going to eat? Like, screw that. That's not going to work. You know, how am I going to yeah. feed their children, yeah. my children? And and so that becomes a, a difficult spot. Um, I think it's a little easier when you work with a, a corporation, like a commercial fishing fleet or something like that, because you, you can just set the rules because you know it's not life or death. Um, mm. You know, you know that they're they're going to be able to survive. And now you've got like rotating marine protected areas in the Philippines, where they're working with artisanal. WWF is working with artisanal fishers, fishing communities, and what they do is they say, okay, in this season you can't fish here, and in this season we'll move it, and you can't fish here. So there's always like a rotating set of areas that are closed off and areas that open up. So it allows people, allows the fishing community still to benefit from that, um, but it's more, as we talked about, sustainable. Hey guys, we know that not all of you are Aussies out there. If you're American, then you probably already know about SpearingMagazine.com. But if you're down under, perhaps you haven't heard, but they get stories from down under too, don't they, Turbo? Capitalism. Capitalism. Cap, cap, capitalism. Capitalism. Eight issues for 30 US dollars plus That's, shipping. Oh my just, God. Just that's um- oh my god! That is unbelievable. That's such good quality. Oh my god, three seventy-five per issue. Value, American bald eagle. Oh, thirty dollars U.S. plus shipping. Email Jeremy at spearingmagazine.com. Jeremy at spearingmagazine.com. J E R O M Y at spearingmagazine.com. We had a we had a guy on the show a while ago, and he he his his kind of thing was um, packing for these really remote trips and really sort of braving it out into sort of unexplored parts of coastlines and having a really good go. And uh, very exciting guy to talk to. Really really love what he did, and uh, it was interesting getting sort of his insights on how he prepared for these trips. But he was in the water uh, in, a, in an unexplored part of um, of, of, of sort of uh, Asia. I believe it was around Sri Lanka. Um, 
I, I can't quite remember the details, but he was in the water and a thousand meters away, uh, a guy started dynamite fishing. Uh, and and he was in the water, so you can imagine what that's doing to your ears when you when you're 15 meters or, or 40, 40 50 feet down, and and here's this guy dropping dynamite in the water. And I mean, I mean, this is a part of of, of fishing that's long gone from most parts of the world, but um, it's still happening in some parts. Yeah. yeah, you still have dynamite fishing in some parts. You're right. I think it's more um, areas that are not really opened up to a lot of people it's, it's just an easier way a more efficient way uh cyanide fishing is still used for especially the aquarium industry um yeah. which again is starting to decrease but people are still using it um, but we're much mm. more aware of it we can tell like usually if people use cyanide for fishing and they use it for the uh, the aquarium industry usually the fish die soon after so by the time you get the fish they end up dying so they're not really a lot of um uh, importers of, of aquarium fish are, are getting are getting on to it and they know who not to buy from now. So they're they're kind of um, excluding them from the process these these cyanide mm-hmm. fishes. But dynamite fishing, I mean, yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's still used. Uh, you know, yeah. fishing in general is it's a it honestly when you look at it in certain parts of the world, it is a complete mess. Um, yeah. I mean you've probably heard the stories Indonesia's firing on Chinese ships because uh, they're in their they're fishing in their area and they're sinking their boats, you know, by wow. by by missile. Like it's you know it's insane. Right. And then you have like international fishing, where uh, you know you have major human rights violations. You have basically slaves on ships. They take them from the Philippines. They take them from Indonesia, uh, parts of India, and they'll mm. bring them on the ship and they they'll feed them very minimal. And if they get sick, yeah. they get thrown overboard. They never and they rarely go back to their uh, to their go home countries. They they rarely see their families. They just send the money back if they get any money at all. Yeah, I find that some sometimes with Spiros, they get pretty angry. Like uh, on your Instagram profile or your Facebook, a lot of uh, Spiros will will have pictures of them holding up these big fish, and people misinterpret that as like, oh, you know, these guys are just trophy hunting sort of type A dickheads. Uh, really, just trying to look cool, but I think for me, like when I look at it, a lot of a lot, like I sometimes I you can see too many of these pictures, but sometimes I think oh, that's just the culmination of a of a day's kind of hard work, and uh, really the photo is just like to capture the memory and the feeling and the sensation of the day. But you, you, you get these haters on Instagram or Facebook and they come along and they say, oh, it's horrible what you're doing to these fish or whatever. And I find Spiros can often pay, play like a, an educational role with people about, you know, oh, well, this is where my fish came from. This is how they this is how they grow. This is how they interact with their environment. This is how we catch them. Um, where do your fish come from? And I mean, before the show started, you and I were talking about seafood labeling. A lot of the stuff that comes out of um, parts of the world like Indonesia, you got no idea. You're, you're lucky if you even know if the, if the seafood was harvested from your own country, let alone whether it's even labeled correctly. So. Oh yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting. It's it's welcome to a judgy world, right? It, with, especially with social media, uh, yeah. you know, you can put up a, 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 you know, I see photos of of spearfishers putting up a photo. They caught a mahi mahi or something, a beautiful fish. Um, but mm. I think there's a difference between and 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 it's you're right. I think that's that spearos can play a great educational role. 
um, in in this. But what happens? I think the major difference between that and and what a lot of people don't realize, and I'm a lot of times I'm the first one to kind of check those people who judge prejudge. Um, but when you look Ooh. at trophy hunting in itself. You know, when yeah. you think of trophy hunting, especially with like Cecil the Lion, you see lions, uh, rhinos, uh, 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 elephants, that kind of thing. Mm. You're looking at these are endangered species, right? These are mm. these are species that should not be hunted at all, uh, based on the mm. science. Um, and you know, you do get that with some some fishers that will have like a they're not they're they 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 fish a protected hammerhead shark in Florida state waters or something like that. But a lot of the mm. times. The Spiros and other recreational fishers abide by the law. And yeah, mm. like, I'm sorry, if I was a Spiro and I went down and I caught a, a great fish that I've been hunting for a while or I've been waiting for a while, if you think about it, it's mm. one fish. You know, it's not mm. as if, like, it's a, it's, it's not as if you're grabbing a net and setting up a trap for, like, hundreds or thousands of fish and grabbing them. These are, like, it, it's, it's what fishing should be. It's almost like a rod and reel, but you're down, you're down below. Like how much on average, how many, how many catches do you get in a, in a trip of fish? Do you think? Uh, if I go out on a sing, if I go out on a single day spearfishing, I, I mean, I would seldom shoot, shoot more than half a dozen fish. Uh, often just two or three, uh, but it, you know, it depends. Sometimes you do go out on an extended trip where you, you know, like it's a once a year trip where you spend five or six days out on the reef and you might, you might shoot 10 fish a day. So there are those trips, but for most Sparrows, that's probably once a year or maybe even twice a year. And, um, but like I find within the community, like we're pretty rigorous at self-policing, uh, particularly in Australia and New Zealand. Like, um, if you, if you fish something undersized, we're almost quite too militant with, uh, with, with how, how people do it. And, oh, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't do that. And, um, but there's a whole culture that's developed around it. We try and encourage, um, you know, private messaging people, um, rather than naming and shaming and, and just trying a different strategy. Um, it's education. But, but, it's education. Yeah, it's like, exactly. you know, you can't really, that look too close to keep or something like that. And I know sometimes there's a line, um, but when you when you talk about you know putting up like a, a picture of what you caught on social media, that's social media. Unfortunately, yeah. you know you can't get away with that. I've posted some things where people got on me, and I'm just like, I meant it as a conservation message. You know, you misinterpreted what I said, and and yeah. and it's just there's some people you will never get through, and that's what I learned having this podcast is there are mm -hmm. some people that. You know, you have uh, extreme people who are against protecting the environment for whatever reason, but then you also mm. have extreme people that are protecting the environment at whatever cost. You know what I yeah. mean? Like you shouldn't, we shouldn't fish. We shouldn't even be in the water. Uh, you know, you, you we should you can't all die. Do, yeah, you can't <laughs> do anything. Humans are the worst things in the world, and yes, we're probably yeah. the biggest parasite on the earth. But we're here, and you know, we got to treat it the best we can. And 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 I think sometimes it's just the messages are targeted at the wrong people, and and mm. and, and any kind of messaging where you're 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 degrading somebody, you're downing somebody for what they do on social media from a picture or from a video is absolutely terrible because you don't know what they went through, you know? And in fact, a lot of marine biologists are fishers, you know, mm. and they eat seafood and stuff. And there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. It's trying to become the most responsible fisher or the most responsible seafood eater 
is a difficult mm. task in itself, and and the ones that do, uh, which are many of them, are 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 know a lot about what they're doing. And then there are sometimes we're like, no, I'm not going to fish that species, or I'm not going to eat that species because I know it's not sustainable, or I know it's not right. Yeah, right. You're educated in that kind of stuff, and and from an education standpoint, I I, I hope to see more spiros educate on their posts, being like you know, got this, this is the size that we were allowed to keep. This came in at this size, you know, and, and educate people on the, on the, um, on the sport in itself, because, you know, it's good to have this type of, of, of podcast because, you know, talking about the science of, of going underneath like free diving and, and how to, to maximize your bottom time and, and make sure everything is safe and make sure you're fishing the right fish. And, and this and that, there's a lot that goes into it and it, and it definitely plays an educational role to make sure that you can produce or you can help these spearfish, especially new like beginners to just be like, Hey, this is, I'm going to listen to this guy because this guy knows what he's talking about. He's helping me out. Yeah. 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 Definitely. It's about the older guys instilling some stuff on the, and the younger guys. And I mean, this is what the podcast is about. It's kind of like sharing stories and lessons learned because a lot of the time when you, 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 you know, when you, when you're new to spearfishing, it's kind of like, Oh, I'll just, Oh, that I can shoot that. It's there, you know, but the, the, kind of like the better you get it's like the more selective you become and uh and um and so a lot of the older guys when they share their stories and stuff with the younger guys the younger guys can kind of vicariously learn a lot of information sort of uh just through storytelling and uh so i mean this is one of the pleasures of being able to have a podcast we've had a marine biologist spiro on the show before his name is uh richard pillins he he works for the csiro in uh australia and and as it's exactly like what you were saying, you know, like he was like, I don't target the species because of this and this reason. And he says, but I will shoot these fish all day long because I know that that fishery is sustainable. And, and uh, a lot of the, a lot of the um, fish he's talking about are um, larger pelagic species, which are, which are huge fish and they taste great. And, and their, um, their, their spawn is done uh, in a different place unlike a lot of reef fish where the the populations are very localized and uh and they and they they reproduce much 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 slower so for sure well and then and then also like spear fishers can can um can be utilized in conservation quite regularly and in fact um you know just you mentioning that uh on the east coast of the u.s and in the caribbean uh we have a huge invasive uh lionfish problem uh yeah yeah, yeah. huge and and the the best way to get them is not fishing from above, from the surface, because then you're worried about grabbing other fish. Um, but it's it's spear fishing and eating mm-hmm. and eating the hell out of these fish. So yeah, you know yeah. what what a lot of uh, let let's prep. Let's preface that. Let's preface the lionfish. So, if you are going to eat a lionfish, learn exactly how to friggin' uh, do it safely because there's a bit of a danger there. But it, but can please continue? Please continue. You're right. um, yeah, but yeah, you're yeah. right. No, and, and actually, I was just about to say that was uh, government groups and nonprofit organizations will have um, will will have videos on how to actually um, fillet a, a lionfish so it's safe to eat. And actually, it, it's yeah. become quite the the delicacy uh, in the yeah, southern yeah. U.S. and in the Caribbean, every, lionfish is yeah. on the menu everywhere, and and governments yeah. and conservationists are like are plotting it because we can't get yeah. rid of them phenomenal. fast enough, right? That's so, phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, and there's even ways to like there. It, it was really interesting. There's a video on how to maximize uh, the the number, like how to like they had spear, and I, I, I'm sure this is a is a 
is definitely a talent and a skill that you have to learn. But they had Spearos actually like getting getting like multiple fish on one spear. So they had them all line like he basically waited till they all lined up because they're not a, a a fish that that will move away from you. They'll just kind of hover yeah. around. They don't move around a lot, and they just you see some of those videos that just go right through like three or four of them, and they just grab yeah. them on one spear and bring like put them in a basket and yeah. then bring them up. It's just you just you have to have that respect for that kind of accuracy, right? Yeah, yeah, and um, there's competitions going there now to really kind of. <clears throat> you know, drive the catches up. Uh, in New Zealand, they have a similar, uh, they've got an invasive catfish species in the uh, in the New Zealand's largest lake, Lake Taupo, and uh, they run a catfish cull there every year, and they harvest thousands of these friggin' fish and uh, use it as um, fertilizer for the local farmers. So, I mean, it's, it's you know, you, you can't ask for much better than that. And uh, in Australia, there's, there's I believe there's some there's some moves to, to try this kind of thing, but government probably haven't got on board with it yet because um like we have invasive tilapia species here which i mean some people say are really good eating but um there's fresh freshwater spearfishing in australia is completely banned as far as i'm aware and uh and so i mean that's the one way that the government could use spear fishermen to 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 definitely help with with management and um and uh and sparrows are only too happy to go out and spearfish for conservation well of course <laughs> i mean it gives them and if one it gives them a great reputation it makes them feel good um and i think that is more of it, it's it, when you start a program like that with invasive species you have to be very careful Right, you got to make sure you know what you're doing before you can send out uh, what we call citizen scientists to go out and and spear these fish. So even the one with the lionfish, it took a while for that those programs to come along, and there were pilot programs and everything like that to make sure that the what they were doing was right, um, because eventually you are killing fish, right? And uh, and so so I think with a program like that, especially with government, they have to be very careful. And and as you know, government everything moves at a snail's pace, right? Because they have to make sure they, they do all their checks and balances for it to work. But it, it's it's something that I feel that, that Spiros can take up as, a, as an advocacy and say, hey, we're willing to help. You know, we've mm. got, we've got uh, you know, societies and associations and um, especially in Australia, there's so many just outdoor fishing and, and spear fishing uh, groups anyway, that you can, you can put that together. I mean, just as much as people clean up beaches, Spears can go mm-hmm. out and, and spear invasive species, right? Because it's a yeah. huge problem around the world, especially on island nations uh, where it, mm. it makes a, a huge effect, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think it's, uh, I, I would love to, I don't know if there are, and I'm sure there are, but I'd love to see like a nonprofit organization uh, of Spiros coming around and being like, hey, you know, hire us and we'll take out any kind of invasive species that you, that you have. And, and just as divers in general, uh, you know, like that, that can help out because you, you're like an army of people that can go out in, in large numbers. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, we were talking a bit before the show about kind of, you know, mobilizing, you know, some of these new apps and technology are mobilizing large groups of people to, to do things. And, uh, you know, like you see it in the in the in the in the capital world. You know, in the in the in the world of accommodation, you've got Airbnb and you've got Uber and taxis now. And, and you know, citizen science is possibly going that direction with mobilising people to get involved with um, different kind of projects to you know help 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 the environment in different ways. And we've had a guy on the show from Scotland. He's involved heavily with um, one of the the largest marine park in the UK, and uh, he he's he's, a, he's on the board and he's heavily involved. He promoted a lot of uh, talked a lot about citizen science 
in that episode. And uh, I'm going to have him on again soon to talk again about citizen science. What a, what a, how, do, how do Spiros kind of find out a bit more about citizen science? How do, how do people get involved? You know, uh, it, it's, it's interesting you ask, and I think it's something that you have, to, you have to look up and do research on. There are groups, actually there are websites, and I don't have them with me now. I can find out which they are, where they are. We can link them up in the show notes. Uh, if, if guys just pump in 101 Sustainable Spiro, I'll have a list of kind of links people can go and explore for different science citizen initiatives. But I want to get someone on possibly from their organization to just talk about some of the upcoming projects. Well, one thing that I suggest you do, uh, the uh, there's a conference actually uh, that's in your part of the world uh, that I'm that I'm involved with organizing. It's called the International Marine Conservation Congress. Uh, and last time they had, they do it every two years. Last time it was in St. John's, Newfoundland here in Canada. Uh, this year it's in Kuching, Borneo, Malaysia. Um, okay. And so not close, but not far as well. <laughs> and that's what I mean by that part of the world. Um, but yeah. essentially they had an entire session on citizen science last time. Okay. Uh, and, and this was a whole day session and it was just different projects. And a lot of the projects were run by program managers that said, you know, here's how you maximize uh, your your volunteership. Here's how you 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 market the the citizen science projects and things like that. Um, but a lot of them are are very small programs with very small marketing budgets. So sometimes it just takes a little while to to um, to find them, right? But what I would what I would recommend is you interact with local nonprofits, you know, environmental mm. nonprofits, universities, uh, and and people like myself. You know that that can help you. Like if, if people, a lot of times people come up to me. It's like, hey, I want to, I want to work in a citizen science program, um, and I live in Brisbane. You know, and I'll be like, okay, uh, let me go, let me go see if I can, I can find some contacts for you, and then, mm-hmm. and then see what you like. Well, okay, what like that? You know, there's a there's an organization called uh, Tangaroo Blue uh, that's based out of Australia, and they do beach cleanups. But not only do they do beach cleanups, but they track what they clean up on the beaches, and then they find oh. out what they have most of where they come from, and then they go work with the industries to try and reduce the amount that's going into their beach. Really cool organization, all run by citizen scientists. Um, yeah. And so there's a, there's a lot of things, and I'm sure there's, there's going to be a lot with... Um, I mean, there's, a, there's a, a, a citizen science group called Reef that, is, that has a protocol. You can actually learn how to um, do scientific diving on coral reefs. And, mm-hmm. and, and you can do... Basically, you can go out wherever you want and you can mm. do a run like a line, like a, a line segment, and mm. you know take video or track it, and then you know input it into an overall database. Um, there's, yeah, right, right. there's things like Seagrass Watch where you, again you can do the same thing. You can go out and you can uh, look at um, uh, at seagrasses. Take like quadrants. You know, you have like basically yeah. make a quadrant out of a PVC pipe. Just get you just get uh, what you like uh, the type you want, and then you can go in and and put it down. You just you just you know basically observe what you have in there and write it down. Types of seagrass. They'll tell you. They'll teach you how to identify different types of seagrasses and all that kind of stuff. But when you have a bunch of spiros, you guys probably know your species, or some of you might know your species more than others and stuff, and you can share that. Um, but there's so many of them. Like, uh, uh, do you ever go up to Byron Bay? Uh, down to Byron Bay from Brisbane. Uh, it, it's it's about three hours south. Occasionally, yeah, a lot of hippies there smoking heaps of bongs. But there's <laughs> citizen, yeah, there's citizen science groups in there. There's citizen science groups in the northwest uh, of yeah. Australia. On the is that the gold? No, I'm not sure. I don't know my geography in Australia. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but there's, uh, I did a show. I'll, I'll, I'll link it to to your show notes. But um, I did a show about a woman who heads a citizen science group on um, uh, uh, seagrass, and, okay. and they take people out and they yeah. teach them how to do all the stuff, and they get to see some uh-huh. really cool things, dudong, dugongs, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. it's pretty cool. Ah, cool. I- I actually listened to an episode recently on uh, on your podcast, and uh, and it was all about seagrass. I didn't realize how much uh, how much they did for the environment. Um, and and yeah, 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 phenomenal. And uh, I wouldn't have known that without listening to um, Speak Up for the Blue. So that's the idea. I'm glad you. I'm yeah. glad you did. I mean, that's that's the goal. I mean, you look at you know we we all talk about reefs and how beautiful they are. Um, but you know, you look at mangroves and seagrasses, and they're integral in that that chain of habitats. Because a lot mm-hmm. of this, this, the species that end up on the reef will start off in the mangroves and the seagrasses as in, mm-hmm. as their nursery habitat. So they go in there to hide. And seagrasses, if you if you listen to the episode, I think you listen to, um, you know, they have like I think it's like fourteen times the biodiversity in in mm-hmm. uh in a seagrass than they would on a on a reef sometimes because it's just mm-hmm. you can fit so many species in there and it's just amazing um mm-hmm. so so those are very integral and, and that's the thing we don't value them as much so when we remove seagrass we don't think it's that big of a deal um but it, yeah. it's it's integral in that in that aspect you know that when um not only that just to sh- but also not only for biodiversity but for shoreline protection as well um mm-hmm. one of the things that came out of the UN during the I think it was was it 2004? 2004 tsunami in in uh, in the Indian Ocean. The biggest thing that they found was that um, uh, the areas that were hit the hardest by the tsunami were areas where the coral reefs and the the, the habitats were degraded the most. Uh, so yeah. where mangroves were removed to put in uh, for shrimp aquaculture, uh, you know, seagrasses were dredged up. That all takes that when you have those in there healthy, it decreases the wave energy, right? Mm. So they'll still be damaged, but it won't be as much, and it won't go as far in. Um, so that's what they know. So to have all those systems and all those habitats protected and healthy is a benefit to us for shoreline protection for shoreline protection in case of a tsunami. Turbo, uh, Turbo is my co-host, Andrew. He's going to be spewing he missed this interview because uh, he, 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 he's got a background in environmental science too, so he would be able to talk talk uh, much more knowledgeably about lots of these things than uh, than I do. But uh, it's been it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, we might have to get you again in the future. Really wanted to ask you um, if you if um, you know if you if you had a sort of a final message for the spearfishing community at large, really. I'll put you on the spot here. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it, you know one thing is is um, it's 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 pleasure to to chat with with you on, on this. I mean, this is awesome. This is awesome. It doesn't matter if you have a background in environmental science or not. The questions are very similar to what we get with a lot of people. And and, and the thing is with Spiros is you guys see the change. You know, especially guys who have been doing it for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, you've seen the changes in the ocean. And scientists see the same thing. Conservationists, we see the same thing. And we're all doing, we're all trying to do our part. So the the, the first thing I would say is is educate where you can. Educate people who are not Spiros. Educate people who are Spiros uh, or continue to do so if you already do so. Um, and, and approach conservationists, approach um, scientists 
with that 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 same respect as they should approach you you know and, and just have conversations and see where you can help you know you talk about how you know spirits can get more involved in, in conservation there are ways sometimes you just have to look a little bit more and, and I will be more than happy to help where I can um, unfortunately that part of the world I'm not as connected as I am in the US and North America and, and whatnot but I do have some some uh, connections there and 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 the thing is too is um, remember that scientists are very approachable. You know, they we love talking about this stuff, um, and we don't want to depress you. We don't want to judge you. Uh, you know, that's that's one thing. But a lot of times, we want to work with you. You know, so I know a lot of spirits. You probably have your own boat, or you have access to a boat. Scientists are always looking for boats. We're always looking to get out because we have budgets that are that are minute. You know, and and if you can help out that way by volunteering and taking some scientists out, great contact local universities, contact some government agencies, that kind of stuff that mm. want to work with you and, and whatnot. Now, I'm not saying all scientists are the best. You know, we have our, our bad seeds. All conservationists have our bad seeds. But, um, you know, for the most part, they're, they're very approachable. Um, and and if I would also say like, go to conferences. If you can go to conferences, go uh, and mm. interact with scientists and conservationists and, and whatnot and um, and and offer offer your help if you have the time, uh, and and you're able to help uh, offer help and and I think uh, you'll you'll realize that if somebody comes in and offers me boat time, or uh, anybody <laughs> boat time, you're like, oh, yeah, I'll take it, you know. And, and there's there's a respect for it, especially I think with Spiros because you guys we go through the same thing, we see the same thing, yeah. and I know I know Spiros don't want to see a, a degradation of an environment that they're that they go every year, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so that's, that's what I would say is, is educate on your own part, right? And, and if you need help getting information, I'm always here or, or, or scientists are always there to, to help out wherever, wherever we can. And, we're, and I think what, I think the mis- biggest misconception, I think, um, you know, how you guys have misconceptions of everybody thinks you're just out for the biggest trophy and all that kind of stuff. I think that a yeah. lot of the misconceptions about scientists is we don't want to interact with with the public we you know we we think we're better than everybody because we know more well that's not true mm-hmm. and you know we want to interact with the public you're seeing more science communicators come out because we're just like you guys we just want to help that's that's all we want to do we just we tend to tell the facts and that's what we stick with um and now you get more people that are emotional too but but we we try and stick with the facts and 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 get people uh to listen and the more help we have uh, to listen, the better, right? And, and the more help we have to spread the message, the, the better. So always look for collaborations. Well, you're doing a phenomenal job over there at Speak Up for the Blue, and I'll continue to listen to your uh, podcast because I really enjoy it and learning about different parts about the marine environment. And uh, it's really good to listen to some informed um, sort of science about stuff. And uh, like I said, Andrew, absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Where can, where can people find you? Uh, well, you can find, I mean, you can get a, ha- a hold of me uh, at uh, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Snapchat, at Speak Up for Blue. That's, I'm always on those. Uh, maybe not so much yeah. Snapchat. Uh, I do have a Facebook. <laughs> I do have, <laughs> I do have a. F- we've got, we've got Snapchat as well, but I wouldn't even know how to use it. I know. <laughs> but you got to do it. You, I don't even know. Is it worth even having a token presence if you don't do it properly? I don't know. It's, I know. So there's some, there's some times where I'm just like, I don't know. I almost want just my daughter to control it. I'm like, you do it on, on behalf of science. I'll tell you what to say. You, you know more how to use it than I do. 
<laughs> but um, I do we, I do have a Facebook group that anybody can join. It's speakupforblue.com forward slash group. And then, of course, the podcast. I'm on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, uh, TuneIn. Um, do you guys have uh, Alexas? Do you guys have those? those? You know, the smart home devices? No, not really. Oh, you guys don't have that yet. Okay, well, basically, it's like this little machine that it's voice activated, so you can ask you to, and you can actually play my podcast on there. Uh, so uh, it's kind of fun. So it's it's the Amazon uh, uh, Alexa that they have, and it's really it's really uh, okay. cool. Yeah, yeah. So there's all okay. there's a bunch that are coming up, but you can play it off of that. Uh, but yeah, iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, um, we're a bit, Stitcher, we're a bit, anywhere you listen to a podcast, you can get a hold of us. So. Uh, uh, yeah, take a listen and and uh, subscribe and and I'm definitely I've subscribed to the Spear, so I'm I'm learning about spear fishing because I'm 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 very interested. I don't know if I have the guts yet to try it, but we'll see. Maybe one day. All right. Well, I'll link all the stuff up in today's episode. Anyway, so it'll be 101 uh, Sustainable Spiro. So thanks for joining us today. Andrew Lewin from Speak Up for the Blue Wicked. Good chat, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Guys, in today's episode, we discussed getting cold. Now, this is not uncommon. Most of us will experience cold if we do spearfishing for long enough. Now, to overcome being cold, you can get your hands on a good set of booties, gloves, and a wetsuit. Super important, and it's always that compromise between durability and comfort. But head over to spearfishing.com.au and check out a full range of wetsuits. And uh, the thing I like about shopping online, sometimes you can review, you can read a lot of product reviews and get an idea of exactly what you're buying. Now, our show sponsor, spearfishing.com.au, have got a comprehensive list of products with reviews from people just like you and I. So get on there, check out an awesome range of gear, and if you do decide to buy something, pump in the code NoobSpiro at checkout, save $20 on every purchase over $200 at spearfishing.com.au. Thanks for supporting us, guys. Guys, plenty happening in spearfishing news at the moment. I'm going to read a few headlines for you, and we'll link all of these up in the show notes. So if anything piques your interest, get over to um, noobsbureau.com and check out the show notes for this episode, and all the links will be there for you. We'll do that for you. All right, so a couple of blokes in the UK uh, got stuck on some rocks at Wembury Point due to big rushing tide. Uh, They were rescued by the Plymouth Coast Guard. And this story really highlights how dangerous um, big tides and rushing water can be. So make sure you check your tide times, the size of the tide, or ask a local if you're new to the area. Stay smart in the water. That one's from devononline.com. Over to the bohemian.com. Now, it's a great article that looks at how the abalone fishery closure in California has increased the number of guys learning spearfishing. It also highlights the present concerns about the overabundance on purple sea urchins. Uh, so check that out. That is a very hot topic um, at the moment. Uh, we've also going to link up for you guys um, a research paper. So recent research published in the International Council for the Exploration of the Sea Science Journal covers an interesting topic. Spearfishing modulates flight initiation distance of fishes, the effects of protection, individual size, and bearing a spear gun. Now, that sounds all highly technical, I know, but if this is your kind of thing and you love to dive deep into this stuff, this would be a great little read. 
Um, it's a few couple of main points there. It's about spearfishing changes your body language. Holding a spear gun changes the way fish perceive you. Is that because they can visually distinguish you? You have a weapon. So uh, we'll link this up. There's heaps of uh, good information in this one. So go over and check that out. All right, that's everything from me. So if anything there piques your interest, head over to the show notes where we'll link it all up and uh, you can have a read for yourself. Well, that's today's episode done and dusted. What an absolute beauty. Some great uh, insights there and some great information um, from Andrew Lewin and great work, Shrek. You put together an absolute beauty of an episode, mate, and all whilst on the road. So pretty impressive if you had done yourself this week. Um, guys, thank you to you for tuning in. Um, without you, we wouldn't be doing this thing. So um, the sport's been really great lately. It's been really rolling on for us. So we appreciate it. Um, our old listeners and new ones alike thanks so much for all your support Uh, thanks for everyone for getting behind us on Instagram as well and uh, chatting with us and letting us know their thoughts Um, just a heads up we have a Facebook group um, the Noob Spiro Facebook group Um, if you're new or you have advice or you want advice get on there and um, post up ask whatever questions you need to ask and uh, we'll get those answered for you or if you have any tips or uh, whatever for the show let us know and we'll try and get those on the show as well so a big thank you guys remember stay safe always dive with a buddy never dive alone and we'll talk to you in a fortnight's time